All right, so we are, I originally, when I originally planned the sermon, I planned to sit during this sermon, okay? I planned to sit on a stool because I think sermons at times can feel like an attack, uh, and I don't want this sermon at all to feel like an attack. I decided not to because as I practiced it on a stool, I think my legs were falling asleep. It would, felt more distracting, okay? It felt more distracting than me just preaching how I normally preach. And so just imagine I'm on a stool. If you're starting to feel attacked, um, just say, Anthony's on the stool right now. He's, he's not attacking me, attacking me, okay? And so um, we're in week two of this series called Countercultural Convictions. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at some of the convictions that we have as a church based on what the Bible says, and we're seeing that a lot of those convictions run counter to the majority culture around us here in this country, in the state, in this city. And so we're going through some of these different topics. So a couple of weeks ago, we kind of just introed into the series saying, how are we supposed to engage culture? How are we supposed to deal with culture? How are we supposed to look at that? And then today, we're starting kind of the first topic uh, in this series uh, that is countercultural, and we're going to be talking about gender today, okay? So, and the Bible's countercultural teachings on gender. So, a few things before we get into it. Here's this. This should start the conversation, not be the be-all, end-all of the conversation, okay? Like, this topic is so big, I think one could easily do like a five to ten week series on just gender in the Bible and kind of going through the different nuances and going through all the different things that the Bible says about this. And so here's what I want you guys to know. This sermon today is just the beginning of the conversation. We want the conversation to continue with one another, all right? And so, so much so, in fact, that after service today around, let's say, 1220-ish, at the church office, which is off of 4th Street, I'm going to be there. Sam's going to bring pizza for anybody that comes. We're going to eat pizza together, and we're just going to go. We're going to wrestle more deeply with this topic of gender. Uh, I, I want to be there for you to ask any questions, to go, hey, this part of your sermon was confusing. Help me understand that, and we can talk through that a little bit more. And so if you want to come to that, stop by the Connect Desk on your way out and say, hey, I'd like to come and spend some time, spend some lunch. And you can come for as long as you want or uh, not as long as you want type of thing. You can go, come and go as you please, but we're going to spend some time just wrestling through and hopefully nuancing this issue of gender. And so if that's something you're interested in, stop by the Connect Desk on your way out. And I'll say this, hey, if you want to come to that lunch to debate me, guess you win. You win the debate, all right? You win it right now, okay? I don't really want to debate uh, in the sense of I think sometimes we all have a heart to debate in order to win, in order to dominate, and let you, you win, okay? That's what I'm going to say, if that's your heart. If you want to come and wrestle with things, contend with things, even have what about this or what about that questions, I love it. But if you want to do like kind of a debate thing, I was never on the debate team, you're going to win, all right? So that's kind of where we're at. You should uh, come if that's something you're interested in. Uh, another thing, I want to suggest a resource. I said each week I'm going to try to suggest at least one resource or a book, something to read. The book that I'm going to suggest to read for you guys based on this topic is called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Okay, it's called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Okay, I think if you're going to only read one thing on this, which I don't think you should only read one thing on this, I think you should read Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. This book set, 
is biblically faithful in approaching how does the Bible approach this topic of gender, especially in relation to how our culture is uh, approaching it right now. And so I'll warn you about the book. For some of you in the room, the book is going to make you feel uncomfortable. Like it's going to press into things. You're like, I didn't know we talked about that sort of stuff in the church. And then for others in the room, you're going to go, well, I think that book is like kind of bigoted and closed-minded and closed off. And so here's what I say. It's a book, okay? I'm not suggesting the Bible. I'm not saying it's God's word. But I do think this author, even though there might be some minor disagreements even I have with him, is being biblically faithful to this topic. And so read that book if that's something you want to um, get into more deeply, all right? So that's kind of all the front end stuff. Let's, let's start here. Where I want to start is, is even just to talk about who's in this room. When it comes to gender, there's people in this room that this is a very painful topic. When it comes to gender, there's people in this room, this is a very confusing topic. And it's confusing for all sorts of reasons, but one of the reasons is because some people in this room have something they would call gender dysphoria, where they feel disconnected from their physical body, where their inner self feels separate from their outer self, and it causes all sorts of different things. But as you meet people, even in the trans community or with gender dysphoria or, or whomever, what you're going to find is they all have different stories. They all relate to their gender in different ways. That's just true. And for some, this brings anxiety. For some, this brings a sort of almost like a physical pain that they seem to feel. And we have to acknowledge that before we get started. This topic of gender is not just a topic. It's not just a concept for some people in here. This topic of gender, like, it involves real, live, actual people. It involves people in this room, faithful, Jesus-loving people who are wrestling with their gender. Or that their gender is painful. And I want us as a church, as we get into this topic, to be careful not to pontificate from afar. When we come to topics like this, it can be easy to just kind of pontificate and say, well, here's all the things the Bible says, deal with it, and not try to meet people, incarnate into their life, hear their story, and listen what's going on. Now, I'm not saying we abandon the truth. We as a church will always be resolved in truth but we're also going to be radical in love. That's who we are as the, truth, as the church. We are resolved in truth, radical in love. Okay, So that, that's something we have to know, that this is really painful for a lot of people in here. And for those that are painful, those that this topic is painful for in here, I hope that we as a church can come around them and love them and walk with them and, 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 and help them in any ways that we can. All right? So... Countercultural convictions, gender. Let's start with where, what does culture believe about gender right now? Where is culture at when it comes to the gender conversation? Here's where, where I, I'm going to kind of paint the broad paint stroke of where I think gender, or like where our culture is at in regards to gender. And it's not just a one-size-fits-all. I'm going to talk about the smaller part of our culture right now. There is a smaller part of our culture. You could call it the conservative part of our culture where they take gender and biological sex and they say it's one and the same. They say, hey, there's only two genders. There's male and there's female. And that's kind of a, a smaller portion of our culture, but it's still a significant part of our culture. 
That's where many evangelicals find themselves. That's where many of us as Christians find ourselves, where we say, hey, there's male and female. Those are the two genders. That's it. But it's not just evangelicals that find themselves there. there. There's still portions of our culture that would say, hey, there's two genders. It's male and female. That's it. It's linked to biological sex. So that's one part of our culture. Another bigger part of our culture, we can call it the progressive part of our culture, or whatever label you want to use for that, but the progressive part of our culture would actually say they believe there's a distinction between gender and between biological sex. So something we have to realize as Christians right away is basically no one in our culture is arguing that biological sex isn't real. Okay, so sometimes I think we come into this conversation going, thinking they're saying biological sex isn't real, male and female, that is. No one in our culture is really arguing that. I'm sure you could Google it right now and find somebody. But I'm just saying that for the most part, the vast majority of people, they're not arguing that. What they're arguing is our biological sex is something separate from our gender, our gender identity. And so what our culture is saying is essentially something along the lines of, like, listen, how you express yourself is your gender. What you feel on the inside is your gender. The behaviors that you want to do as a person that you link up with, that's your gender. And so our culture would say even what matters is not your biological sex at all. What matters is what you think you are on the inside. What you feel on the inside matters far more than whatever you are on the outside. Okay? And so that's kind of where our culture is at with gender. There is a distinction between biological sex and gender. And a lot of our culture is even saying, listen, a lot of the behaviors that we associate with male and female are, are, are cultural things. They're just cultural constructs. And so they say, instead of living to the cultural constructs, they're kind of saying, just tear the cultural constructs down, okay? So that's where our culture's at. What are we gonna do today? What we're gonna do today is I wanna teach what does the Bible say about all of that? What does the Bible say about all of that? And I'm gonna warn you right now, sometimes today as I teach, some of you in the room might think I'm a heretic, and I don't want to be a heretic. I'm not trying to be a heretic. Some of you in the room might think I'm a bigot. You think I'm prejudiced in certain ways, and I don't want to be a bigot. And I'm saying that to warn you right now, because what the Bible tends to do to everyone is it kind of flips things upside down. Things that you're sure about, the Bible tends to speak and say, well, is it really like that? Here's how it really is. And so I think today, as I want to just give you what the Bible says, I don't want to give you what Anthony says about gender because then it's just going to get weird, okay? It's just going to be my own thoughts and my own perspectives, but I really have worked hard, honestly, over the last few years to go, what is the Bible saying about this? What does the Bible have for us? And I'm not saying I'm a perfect vessel of understanding the Bible, but my hope is humbly, I hope, that I, I, I've looked at what does the Bible say about gender and how we're supposed to approach this and think through these topics. And so there's going to be kind of four movements that we go through today. I'm going to take a little drink of water. The four movements that we're going to go through today, kind of the four parts of the sermon today is this. First, we're going to see how the Bible approaches gender, okay? That will be the first movement. The second movement, second part of the sermon, we're going to see how does the Bible approach gender biological sex, 
Okay, how does the Bible approach biological sex? That will be the second part of the sermon. The third part of the sermon, after we talk through those things, there's going to be at least two big questions, if not more, just like these what about questions, right? I've been there listening to a preacher and I'm going, what about this? What about this? What about this? So I'm going to spend at least a few minutes going through two of the biggest, maybe two to three if you kind of combine one of them as two questions, two of the biggest what about questions that are probably coming up as we see how the Bible approaches gender and biological sex. And then the last part of the sermon, I want to look at where Jesus will lead us in this, where Jesus would lead us into this topic, around this topic, in our thinking about this topic. So let's get started with how does the Bible approach gender? How does the Bible approach gender, okay? So remember, our culture is saying that gender is an expression of oneself. The vast majority of our culture isn't saying gender is what you're born as, but what you feel on the inside. Here's a helpful definition that's probably like the most agreed upon definition in culture right now about what gender is. I'm not saying you agree with this, and I'm not saying the people that unite biological sex and gender agree with this. I'm just saying our culture tends to think this way about gender. They say that gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female. Okay, so that's how, that, that's kind of like the most agreed upon definition. Gender is more of an expression of the inward than whatever you are on the outward. Let's talk about how our culture has approached gender in a couple different ways, though. So let's talk about the conservatives and how conservatives in our culture have approached gender. Conservatives in our culture, which make up a significant part of our culture, and this is why I'm talking about it, they approach gender, they kind of say, men are this way, women are this way. And again, guys, I'm going to be doing a lot of oversimplifying in this sermon, okay, for the sake of time. You're going to go, I'm not like that. or like, I get it, okay, but I'm oversimplifying for the sake of time, and I also think it points to what is true in our, reality, in our culture right now. So conservatives in our culture, they, they tend to kind of go, hey, men are this way, women are this way, right? Men do these things, women do these things. Or they might even go, men should be doing these things and women should be doing these things. You go, no, I don't say that. But I think a lot of those in kind of the conservative camp say men are this way, women are this way, right? And often a common trope would be women cry a lot, men are stoic, right? If you watch our art, our movies, don't laugh at that. Um, our, our, I'm just kidding. Our art, our movies, right? Men are very seldomly depicted as crying, right? In movies and stuff. Women are more often depicted as crying in our movies, in our art, in our culture, right? And so there's things like that where kind of like where we say, hey, men don't cry, women do cry. And I, I think that one's funny to me because I think uh, some of the men that have hurt me uh, the most in my life have been really emotional, unrestrained men, which is how a lot of times women are depicted in our culture. But anyways, that's just my baggage coming to the table right now. Um, so we, that's kind of how it goes. We go, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman, right? I, I had a friend recently uh, who someone, this is an example of kind of how this can play out at times, okay? Uh, someone came to my friend and gave his son a baby doll, okay? A baby doll, a doll baby. I don't know what you call these. Um, a baby doll because this friend of my friend noticed his son liked playing with baby dolls. And my friend just started freaking out about that. 
oh, I wish they would have talked to me before giving that. They're just like, I don't know. I'm just, I, don't, I don't know if that's what, like, and I just wonder, like, if this kid had been given a rocket launcher or something, if the dad would have been freaking out as much, which, by the way, our kids shouldn't have rocket launchers. I'm fine with pretend ones, but I don't think any of our kids should have real rocket launchers, okay? And I'm just saying that this is kind of how, how one side of our society kind of freaks out. Men are supposed to take care of babies. I don't know if you guys know that. Right? Like men are supposed to, yeah, thank you. All the moms, thank you. Who do I need to talk to? Tell me who it is. No, I'm just kidding. Men are supposed to take care of babies, right? And a lot of people in our culture are going, yeah, I know, I know that. But it's okay. I would even say it's okay for little boys to play with baby dolls. That's a good thing. Jesus was gentle and lowly. And you have to be gentle and lowly to take care of a baby. Again, just some of my baggage. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of how... Um, one part of our culture views it. Men are this way, women are this way, just deal with it, buy into it, type of a thing, oversimplifying. Now, progressives in our culture, the progressive side of things, they would kind of say, well, none of, none of the gender stuff matters. None of the social constructs matter at all. Like, just tear it down, be who you are, uh, operate how you want. And even what, our, what we've seen over the last decade in particular is people have begun to invent genders. Like, they've said, hey, there's more genders than male and female. There's all sorts of genders. There's no construct for gender. The gender construct, a lot of what our progressive culture says, and this is, I think, the vast majority of people in our culture would say, there's no construct. It's whatever you want it to be. Make up your own constructs about gender and label yourself in those ways. Find yourself in those ways and be that, okay? So that's kind of how different parts of our culture relates to the constructs of gender. Remember, when I'm saying gender here, I mean the expression that is linked to maleness or femaleness, all right? But what then does the Bible say about the rigid constructs about gender and the loose constructs? about gender. And I actually think the Bible says something to both sides. I think to the, to the rigid constructs, those that kind of would find themselves in the more rigid constructs around gender, I think that the Bible says, you've gone too far. You've gone too far with this. To those that are more loose and believe in the loose constructs about gender, I think the Bible would say, there are some minor constructs around this thing called gender that God wants us to live out. That's what I think the Bible would say. So, let's speak to the, uh, the rigid side of the room first. Some of you are probably going, why are you going so hard at the rigid people? Well, most of us in here are probably more in that camp, right? I'd rather talk to who's here than who's not here. So, the rigid side of the room. I said that the Bible would say that you probably, in regards to gender, it would say you've gone too far. Here's what I mean. I think that we've gone too far because I think the Bible itself resists rigid gender stereotypes, okay? The Bible resists rigid gender stereotypes. Here's what I mean. When I read the Bible, I see men and women doing all sorts of things. They're doing all kinds of stuff, and it's not being condemned a lot of times. All sorts of things that our culture would say is masculine or our culture is saying is feminine. And we, what I find when I'm reading the Bible is the Bible is rarely, if ever, condemning a man for acting feminine or a woman for acting masculine. It's kind of just presenting it like, this is how it is. This is how it goes sometimes. Okay, so now you're going, oh, Anthony's freaking out. He's a heretic. Let's 
flesh that out a little bit, all right? Let's take crying, okay? Crying, right? Crying in our culture, maybe not so much anymore, but I grew up when, on the tail end of people still saying boys don't cry, which didn't work out for me because I think I cried the most of any kid, like, in history of America. And so I, I just cried all the time. And so uh, luckily my parents never said that to me, so I kept crying, and I still cry, as you know. And so let's just take crying. This is considered a feminine thing, right? It's not masculine to cry. When you read the Bible, I, I, I haven't gone through every single passage and tallied it out, but I feel pretty sure from reading the Bible a lot that men cry more than women in the Bible. I feel pretty sure men cry more than women in the Bible. We see Jesus crying. We see David crying. We see every man crying, right? Every time something bad happens, men are crying in the Bible. That spits in the face of what our culture says is masculine. So, and the Bible doesn't condemn men for crying. In fact, Jesus cried. So if you're going to condemn that, you're going to have to condemn Jesus. And that's a whole different situation that you need to work out. <laughs> and so I would say that the Bible even, if you're going to say what's masculine in the Bible, the Bible would say crying. But I would actually say that I think the Bible resists rigid gender stereotypes. I think they would say crying is crying. It's not masculine. It's not feminine. Okay, so that's one reason. Let's take another, on the other side of things. Let's take something that's considered masculine, uh, but maybe women in the Bible are living it out without being condemned. Work, right? Some in the more rigid of gender expression would say, hey, work, that's what men do. Men work, right? Like we go, we work, right? That's what we do, okay? We say it like that when we're going to work in our cars, if you don't know that. And so, um, that's kind of like what is presented, right? And there's, there's some very minor biblical merit to that, but I, don't, I don't, almost don't even want to say that and because you're going to take that too far. But there's, uh, there's this kind of idea of, of men work, women don't. But when I read the Bible, I read about a lot of women working and a lot of women not being condemned for working. Here's, here's a few examples. Deborah. In Judges, she works as like a general, a judge of Israel. And she helps free Israel through her work of fighting. You know, fighting. So some will go, well, that was because the judge, you know, was supposed to be a man, but Judges is showing that Deborah's a woman, and that's like the bad sin that Israel's doing. Okay, maybe not. We could skip Deborah. What about Lydia? Lydia in Acts 16. She is a business-owning woman. She, she sells like purple goods, it says. So I guess purple was harder to come by back then or something. And so Lydia is this rich businesswoman who gets saved and she funds the early church and hosts the early church and was a leader more than likely in the early church. CEO type. And she's never condemned for being that. Okay, maybe that, okay, those are not good examples. Let's take, here's a good one. The Proverbs 31 woman. Uh-oh. I grew up. I don't know if you grew up in churches like this. I grew up in churches where youth pastors said, if you want to be a woman, you want to be the Proverbs 31 woman. And I said, thank God, because that looks really hard. <laughs> that looks tough. I don't know if I could do that. 
And by the way, the youth pastors were preaching it wrong, okay? That, that actually, she just happens to be a woman. She embodies wisdom for us. We're all supposed to want to be the Proverbs 31 woman, okay? That's for the Proverbs series we're going to probably not do, but, but you get the idea, okay? But anyways, let's say, let's say the Proverbs 31 woman is what women are supposed to be. And look what she does. She buys property. She runs a business. She has a strong back. And she provides for her family. The Proverbs 31 woman, Lydia and Deborah, all spit in the face of rigid gender stereotypes. They all spit in the face of our culture's understanding of masculinity and femininity. They just do. And the Bible doesn't condemn them for it. Because I think the Bible does not have a ton of rules about what's masculine and what's feminine. But I think our culture does. I think a lot of our culture has rules about what's masculine and what's feminine. And those that are more in the rigid side, thinking through gender, we have to realize a lot of the things we think are biblical are actually cultural. Okay? Like my friend with the baby doll. That's a cultural idea he has for whatever reason. Right? Just think, guys, 200 years ago, dudes were wearing wigs and makeup. I've seen the paintings, okay? In our country. Like, this is awesome. Like, I remember even as a kid being like, why are they wearing wigs and makeup, right? Because I was interacting with cultural expressions of masculinity. So a lot of what we believe is a cultural construct, not a biblical construct, okay? That's what I would say to those in the room that would maybe lean more towards the rigid. Okay, I want to speak now, though, to, to the loose, to the progressive part of the room. What does the Bible say to that side of the room? I actually do think the Bible still says some stuff to that side of the room. It, say, it says a few things. One, I think male and female distinction seems to be an important idea in the Bible, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. But male and female distinction seems to be important throughout Scripture. One of, the, one of the ways that, that plays out is in a command in Deuteronomy 22, and some say 1 Corinthians 11, but that's a confusing passage, so I'm not sure that that's what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying. But in Deuteronomy 22, it's essentially saying, hey, don't try to appear like the opposite sex. So I think uh, 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 the construct for those that are looser with gender in the room, I think a construct that the Bible would say is, hey, in your culture, in your time, in your place, you should embrace your biological sex and you shouldn't try to confuse people or yourself on what your biological sex is. And I think that's pretty much the main command that God gives around gender expression. There's really not a whole lot more. Now, there are a lot of commands to brothers, to sisters, to mothers, to fathers, to husbands, to wives. But a lot, and, and for whatever reason, I think some of those things are emphasized for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because of how we are created. Maybe it's because of something else that mothers and fathers need to focus on or brothers and sisters need to focus on for some set of reasons. But a lot of times, those commands that are given to brothers and sisters, let's say, are the sort of commands that all Christians are supposed to uphold in some, in some way. Very rarely are those commands things that only brothers do or only sisters do, okay? But all that being said, to the loose side of the room, the progressive side of the room, I would say the Bible would say, hey, your gender distinction matters, 
Your biological sex distinction matters, and you shouldn't try to confuse that. That's what I think the Bible would say to that side of the room, okay? So, we see that our culture has all sorts of constructs for gender, and we see that, the, that I'm kind of saying, well, I think the Bible has a different construct for gender. And so we're probably going, well, what then, Anthony, is the biblical construct for gender? What's the biblical construct for gender? And here's what I say. I actually think the biblical construct for gender is far more freeing than any side of the room. It's far more freeing than the progressive or the conservative side of our culture. And because I think that the biblical construct for gender is tied to our biological sex. And I think that's freeing in a lot of ways that I'll explain in a few minutes. So let's go into the second part of the sermon then. How does the Bible approach then our biological sex? It's going, Anthony, you're being confusing. You're kind of speaking towards gender expression. That's not what I believe anyway. So let's talk about how the Bible talks about and approaches our biological sex. Okay? So... Here's how I think the Bible approaches our biological sex. I think that the Bible says that our biological sex, male or female, for the most part, there are some conditions that honestly could say they're not male or female, and that's something we'll talk about in a few minutes as well. But for the most part, those, the Bible would say that male and female, our biological sex is fundamental to what it means to be a human. So male and female is fundamental to what it means to be a human, okay? That's how I think the, Bi the, the Bible approaches biological sex. It says male and female are fundamental to our humanity. So I just made a big claim about something the Bible says, so I need to kind of unpack that a little bit and, and almost like prove that the Bible is saying that, okay? There, there's a couple reasons why I think the Bible says our biological sex is fundamental to who we are. The first reason is this. The first reason is it seems that male and female is God's intent for creation to image himself in the world. It seems, as you read Genesis, that male and female are God's intent to image himself in the world. It seems like male and female are building blocks for humanity that God wants, okay? So let me read Genesis 1, 26 and 27 again for us. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Genesis 1 opens it's this beautiful poem, this beautiful song perhaps talking through all the parts of God's creation, how God created everything. And what we see in Genesis 1 is the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. And humanity is not just men and it's not just women, it's men and women, it's male and female. And it seems to be God's intent for creation. It seems to be like almost like the apex of God's vision for creation to build humanity that are male and female that image him, that are image bearers. Now some go, well, Genesis 1 is a poem. It's a song. We don't need to take it all literally. And I, I get that. I think we need to read it the way it's written. But then Genesis 2 
goes into a historical prose that's not poetry, that's not a song, and Genesis 2 retells the story of the creation of man and woman. It retells the story of male and female, now not in song form. If you, it's hard to read Genesis and not come away thinking God intended for male and female to be what, re, what is humanity. It's hard to come away from Genesis and not uh, feel that God is saying the way that his image will be displayed through humanity is through men and through women, through male and through female. And that's part of why I think our biological sex is fundamental to our humanity. It's what God created. It's what God designed. It's what God intended. So that means that male and female are not just random things about us, but they are sacred things about us. Male and female is a sacred part of our humanity. We need men and women to image God and show who God is in the world. Our biological sex, I believe, is sacred because of the creation story. Why is it sacred, though? Sometimes it feels so arbitrary. Like, there's so many things in the Bible where it feels so arbitrary. And often what I find, the things that feel arbitrary, the more you look into it, what you begin to see is these arbitrary things are ways of of reflecting who God is in the world. Ways of imaging God that maybe you didn't expect or maybe you can't obviously see. And so the reason why I think God uh, cares about male and female so much as a picture of humanity is because I think it gives us a picture of God's relationship with humanity. Okay, so I think male and female gives a picture of God's relationship with humanity. Here's what I mean. We have a God who is holy, set apart, other than us in so many ways. That's constantly throughout the Bible. When it's calling God holy, it's meaning he's like above creation. He's like separate from creation in some sense, right? God exists outside of time, yet he interacts within time. Like that's just one example. God wasn't created. He's only creator. Like there are things about God that are totally separate and totally different and totally mysterious for us to grasp about him, and there are things about him that only he holds on to in his character. He's holy and set apart and different. And yet, with God, we are made in his, like God made us in his image. So every part of us, aside from sin, every part of us is a characteristic of God. Our emotions are a characteristic of God. How we live life, is it, it shows how God works in this world. What we do. And so uh, all of us, all of who we are as humanity represents God. And yet God is holy and set apart. And yet God has a lot of sameness with us as well. Are you tracking with me? It's a big theological idea. So God, has, he's holy and set apart, and yet there's a lot of sameness in the character qualities, and we have a relationship with God. So God, who is different mysteriously and very much the same as us, is in relationship with us. I think male and female relationships show that. Okay? And I don't just mean romantic relationships. I mean any time male and female are in any sort of relationship, a friendship. 
an acquaintance, a working together, husband and wife, brother and sister, whatever it might be. I think male and female relationship show that aspect of God's relationship with humanity. Because with men and women, what you see is we are different, we are, in mysterious ways. And it's not all cultural. It'd be easy to say, oh, these are just cultural constructs. No, men and women are different. They, they are. I could, I, like, I could show you some pictures. Uh, that sound bad, but you get the idea. Like, biologically, <laughs> I'm fired. Biologically, <laughs> I fired myself. Um, biologically, we're different. And because of our biology, we're different in all sorts of ways, but a lot of the ways are mysterious. What we want to do often in culture is say, here's all the ways we're different. Here's all the ways we're different. Live into those differences. No, I, I think just in mysterious ways, men and women are different and we can't always quantify it. And yet, men and women have a sameness about them. I think that's why we see this picture of God pulling from Adam's side to create Eve. He's saying she is like you. She has a sameness with you. Right? We're both humans. We both equally image God. In fact, we can't image God fully without the other. And so there is a, the emotions we feel are the same emotions. And I'm sure a lot of people in the room, well, it's really different. Yeah, and I don't know all why that is. Maybe that's some of the mysterious stuff. Or maybe it's cultural constructs. I don't know. But we have men and women who have a lot of sameness together and a lot of mysterious difference in relationship. Doesn't that sound like God's relationship with humanity? God who's mysteriously different, who has a lot of sameness with us in relationship with us. So every time male and female work together in any way, it shows this beautiful, sacred picture of what God wants for the universe. He wants to be in relationship with humanity. And male and female show that every single day, whether we know it or not. So why is our biological sex sacred? I think it's sacred because not only is it something God created for us to have, it's something that shows who he is and his relationship with humanity, okay? All right, let's, let's move on to, I have a second reason why I think that our biological sex is sacred, why I think it's fundamental to who we are as humans. And the second reason is this, is I think the Bible teaches that our physical bodies are sacred, that our actual physical bodies are sacred. They're, they're like holy in God's, like they're what God wants us to have. They're his intent, like our actual physical bodies, okay? So that's another big claim I made, that our physical bodies are, are, are sacred, so we should... Uh, accept our biological sex. So I, I kind of have to prove that out. And so here's what I'm going to say. If our bodies are sacred, before I, I prove that out, if our bodies are sacred, then our biological sex, which is part of our bodies, is probably sacred too. Okay? So four quick reasons why I think the Bible teaches that our bodies are sacred. The first reason is because God had a hand in creating them. Okay, if you look at Psalm 139, it's the classic women's Bible study verse. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, written by a man, typical. And so uh, David writes this song about how God knit us together in our mother's womb. And we're fearfully and wonderfully made. 
And this was something that God's people probably sang together a lot. Right? It's not the woman verse. It's the human verse. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah, it's a song. But it's a song showing true realities about God. The, the part that's not literal is God didn't take literal knitting shears and knit us all together. But God guided the process and he had a hand in the process of creating each and every one of us. I honestly think that's probably why we're all unique. Because God has a, pro- uh, he has a hand in the process of creating all of us. That is one reason why I think our bodies are sacred. Because God has a hand in creating our bodies. Okay? Second reason I think our bodies are sacred. The incarnation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The incarnation is this word we use to say that God took on flesh. Word became flesh. Jesus took on flesh to live among us. God took on flesh. Sam Alberry in his newest book about our bodies, which that's another good book to read, he says the incarnation is the biggest compliment God has ever paid our bodies. So God thinks our bodies are good enough for him to take one on himself to show us how we're supposed to live in these physical bodies. That's another reason why I think our bodies are sacred. And guess what? Jesus kept that physical body, and I think he's going to keep it for eternity. Which leads me to my third point of why I think our bodies are sacred is the resurrection. When Jesus resurrected, he resurrected into a physical body. Thomas could touch the holes where the nails were. He ate fish with Peter while he rebuked him. Like, Jesus had a physical body, a resurrected body. Now, and, and, and Romans 8, when it talks about the end of everything, when, when Jesus returns and we're going to live in eternity with him, it talks about the resurrection as a redeeming of our bodies. Not a getting rid of our bodies, not of a forsaking our bodies, but a redeeming of making our bodies what they're supposed to be. The resurrection shows us that we are not separate from our bodies. Our bodies are part of who we are as humans. That's why I think our bodies are sacred. Our bodies are sacred enough that the Son of God is keeping his for all of eternity. Our bodies are sacred. The fourth reason I think our bodies are sacred is is simply this. Paul in Corinthians, he one time, he refers to our body as a temple. I don't think it gets much more sacred than referring to the human body as a temple. The place where God exists, the place where God resides is us. It's not metaphor, friends. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That's mysterious, but that's what's true. The Holy Spirit lives in all that put their faith in Jesus. Our bodies are a temple. It doesn't get much more sacred than that. So I think that our biological sex is sacred because our bodies are sacred. If our bodies weren't sacred, if the Bible didn't teach that our bodies were sacred, then maybe we could begin to examine biological sex. But the Bible seems to say our biological sex is sacred because our bodies are sacred. And it also says that it's sacred because our biological bodies represent male and female, which is God's building blocks for creation, God's intent for creation. So that's just kind of like a handful of reasons 
why I think the biblical construct for gender is, is better and more freeing. And so I think the biblical construct for gender is one that says, listen, you've gotten too crazy about the behavior side of it, but you've also gotten too great, crazy rejecting your biological sex. And so I think the Bible would say our gender and our biological sex are united, and that represents the biblical construct for gender, male and female. And the reason I think it's more freeing is this. It's far more freeing for me to wake up every day and hear, I'm a man because I'm a man. I'm a woman because I'm a woman. Like that our DNA tells us our gender. I don't have to go over here to the rigid side and say, how do I fit in? And every time I cry, how am I not enough of a man? And like, I've literally had that happen in my life because I'm just constantly crying. A lot of the men in my life are not crying. And I'm going, and I, I didn't have a gender dysphoria, but I'm going like, I'm not man enough. But the Bible would say, no, Anthony, you are because you were born a man. I think that's far more freeing. I also think it's far more freeing to those that are loose around gender because I don't have to be confused about who I am. I don't have to be confused about some of the things that I, I do, for in this instance, crying. I don't have to go on some journey of discovery to define who I am. I am who I am because God shows me who I am. And that's male or female, which is sacred in his eyes. I don't have to work for it in either way, according to God. And that's why I think the biblical construct around gender is far more freeing and far more beautiful. Okay, so we still got two parts of the sermon. I'm sorry, friends. It's one of those days. I just said a lot. And so we're probably going, okay, uh, I've got some what about questions for you, Anthony. I got, a, I got a few what about questions. I'm just sitting here going, what about this? What about this? My friends are asking me this. My teachers are asking me this. What, what about this? So I'm going to go through a few of them. The first one is kind of like, what if, what if my inner self doesn't match my body? Like, what if there, there's a disruption there? What if, Anthony, because of sin, there's a brokenness? What if my inner self doesn't match my outer self because of sin? Or, or sometimes people want to say, what if my soul is a female soul in a male body? Or some might say, well, what if, what if my brain, what if my brain is a male brain in a female body? What am I supposed to do with that? And a lot of people have that what about question because as they talk to their friends, they, their friends depict this experience that could sound like one of those things. And so we have to recognize that, that this is a, a valid question to ask. So what do we do in that scenario? What happens when our inner self doesn't match our outer self? What are we supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to think about that as Christians? Here, to answer this quick, quickly is, I don't think uh, there's a divorce in our inner self from our outer self in the biblical teaching. I don't think our soul can be female and our body male. Okay, here, I like how our membership packet puts it. This is what our membership packet says. It says, our bodies are sacred. We're not just persons who have bodies, we are bodies. Body and soul share an integral union, mutually integral to our personhood. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. The body's sexed nature as male or female is not only significant, but bound up with our creation in the image of God. 
What our membership packet is doing is is attempting to summarize the biblical teaching on soul. A lot of us think of our souls like the movie soul. Okay, like, and that's, that's like a Platonic or Aristotelian, some Greek person. That's, that's how they think of the soul and body. They think the soul is something separate and eternal from the body. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that our souls exist with our bodies. That God's vision for humanity is that of a resurrected body, a whole human sinless body with our soul in it. I'm not saying the soul doesn't exist. The soul does exist, but I think it exists in ways that, uh, the, the way that we think about it a lot of times in culture is more like the movie Soul. More like some of what these Greek thinkers thought around soul and not how the Bible teaches about soul. Go to the Bible Project for their video on soul. It's super helpful. Okay, so I don't think there could be a situation where your soul is female, but your body is male. I, do, I don't think that exists. I don't think that's... God's intent. I'm not saying that what you feel in there isn't real and a real feeling you have. I just don't think that's one way to kind of get out of this idea of biological sex. All right? What about our brains, though? That's kind of another thing that people go to. They, go, they, they, they cite something called the brain sex theory. So they basically say, hey, my physical brain, like my differentiated genitalia, is a male brain, but it's in a female body. That's kind of, I'm, again, oversimplifying, but that's kind of what the brain sex theory is. And so I know a lot of people in the room are like, well, what if that's the case? What if I have a female brain in a male body? What am I supposed to do with that? And so here's what I'll say. I'm not a scientist. I don't know if you know that. I'm not a scientist. But as I've looked at the science research on that and different people who have looked at the research and read through all the kind of, what the research is saying about our physical brains is it's saying our brains are not differentiated in the way that our biological bodies are, okay? And so they are differentiated. Our brains are different. I think maybe sometimes male brains are like, they have, they're like, they're heavier and that's because we have bigger heads, like case closed, all right? But, um, But when they look at the brains and they do all the studies on the brains, they do find that brains are different, but they're not different because of our biological sex. They're different based on what you do. The brain has something called neuroplasticity, okay? That's why when you put on a new pair of glasses, you're dizzy for a week, all right? And so the brain has neuroplasticity, so it changes and kind of alters based on the things you do as a person, the actual things you do in real life. And so... For instance, a male dancer's brain may be more, uh, have more in common with a female dancer's brain than he does with a male plumber's brain or a female plumber's brain. Okay, so a lot of our brains, the way that they look different is because of the things we do. But there's still science, being, like research and science being done on this, but that's kind of where it stands. And so I don't think you could have a male brain in a female body, I think our brains are more like our organs. I think they're less like our genitalia, and I think they're more like our hands in similarity, if that makes sense. So I don't think that that's something that's actually happening. I could get to judgment seat day and Jesus could tell me I'm wrong. I'm willing to sit with that, but that's kind of currently what what the science is pointing to and, and showing from what I know of it, okay? So, even though at times our inner self might feel like it's at odds with our outer self, I don't think God would have us reject our outer self. 
I don't think God would have us reject our biological sex. I think he wants us to embrace our biological sex, which again, we have to mention gender dysphoria right now. I'm saying that in this room, and I know for some in this room, that's super painful. That is super confusing. It leads literally to an existential crisis at times where they're going, why did God allow me to be made like this then? Why am I like this? And here's what I could say, I don't know. I don't know every single facet. I don't know how sin has affected you or not affected you or cultures affect you. I don't know. But I, as your pastor, would love to sit with you if you'd be willing to sit with me and walk in this with you and talk through it. And we as the church need to be able to sit with those with gender dysphoria and love them through this. Amen, church? And so that's a reality we have to know. So these truths that I'm saying are really painful and confusing for some. And it's okay. It's okay that it's confusing. We can sit with that. All right? Okay, one last what about question is this. What about intersex? What about the condition of intersex? If you don't know what intersex is, it's a term that describes a broad uh, set of conditions in people where somehow their male biology or their female biology is altered in some way. Usually, it's, it's not very significant. A lot of times, it's not a very significant change. Like, you would still say, oh, I can tell they're a male or I can tell they're a female. That being said, there is a small percentage of intersex people that were born with both sets of biological things. The biological things a male has or the biological things the female has. Some people are born with both of those things at times. And even as you see them, they don't particularly, you're kind of like, I don't know if they're male or female. It's a small, small percentage in our world, but it's a real thing. And so it's something that commonly gets asked. And so this is what I'll say about uh, intersex. I don't know, okay? I don't know. I think we want to be very, like in, in the Christian world, a lot of times we want to go, I know all everything before the resurrection. No, you don't, okay? You don't. We don't know how this is all going to play out when Jesus returns. And so with intersex, I don't know. I think when we meet someone with that sort of a condition, I think we need to be patient and loving and kind and be willing to say, I'm not totally sure what we're called to in this particular instance or that particular instance. That being said, I still think there's a, a place in Scripture where Jesus, I think, deals with an intersex person that is helpful for us is in Matthew 19. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about divorce. He reaffirms the male-female binary for creation. And then he talks about eunuchs, and he kind of nuances it because he's talking about, well, how are they supposed to deal with, uh, with marriage? And so eunuchs, if you didn't know, there were men who had their genitalia cut off or they cut them off themselves or they were born that way. And so they were eunuchs. And as Jesus uh, refers to them and, and addresses this nuance of, I think, at least analogous to intersex, if not actually intersex, Jesus seems to uphold the male-female binary. So when it comes to our friends with intersex, I think as much as we can, we're supposed to uphold the male-female binary. When they're born with both sets of parts, I'm not sure. I don't know. And maybe you think I'm a heretic for that. I don't know. I'm willing to wait until Jesus returns. 
Okay, and so that's kind of what I would say about intersex, that even though it's confusing that Jesus still, he upholds the male-female binary, and he, he talks about that in an intersex situation. Okay, so let's close the sermon. I know it's been a longer sermon today, but I think it's, sometimes we need to spend some extra time, and that's okay. I want to I close with what is Jesus leading us into? What's Jesus leading us? So all of that, the fire hose of information, what is Jesus leading us into in, in all of this? This room, what is he leading us into? I think the first thing he'd lead all of us into is repentance. I think Jesus would lead all of us into repentance. For the rigid in the room, those that are rigid around gender expression in these things, I really think Jesus would tell you to repent. I really think Jesus would say, you've made a law out of something that is not a biblical law. I think Jesus would say, you've done something like the Pharisees did with the Sabbath all the time. And you need to turn away from that way of doing things and turn to me, Jesus, not Anthony. Jesus would call the rigid into the, in the room to repent. But I think he'd also call the loose or the progressive in the room to repent as well. I think to that side of the room, the vast majority of our culture, that side of the room, I think he would call us to repent from how much we've let culture's view of gender determine what we think is the biblical view of gender. How much we've let culture's view of gender shape us and form us and be what we think truth is. I think Jesus would call us to repent, turn from the culture's way of doing things and turn to him because he has a better way. That's what I think Jesus would do is I think he'd call us all to repentance. He'd call one side, hey, reject the man-made laws, but don't reject God's law. Obey God. To the other side of the room, reject the making of man-made laws and embrace God's true law. So the first thing Jesus would do to us in the room is he'd get us all mad. He just would. He'd get us all mad. Jesus kind of had a habit of doing that in the group settings he was in. He'd get a lot of people mad because he was calling people to repentance. Not because he was trying to get them mad necessarily, but because our ways are so often so contrary to God's ways. And all of our ways, not just some of our ways. So God would call us to repent. So what that means for this room, where do you need to repent? It's easy to hear the sermon go, I know where this person I was talking to in my Bible study needs to repent from this. But where do you need to repent? And also, why aren't you speaking the truth and love to that person? But like, like where do you need to repent in this area? Okay? The second thing that I think Jesus would lead us into in this is a holistic, radical love. A holistic, radical love, okay? When I say holistic, I mean that Jesus would lead us into love in all the ways that we're called to love. In all of the ways. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, if you look at Jesus's life, if you look at all the ways that the New Testament in particular talks about love, I think Jesus would lead us into that sort of love. Not just the sort of love we're comfortable with, not just the sort of love we're good at, but a holistic, radical love. That's what I think Jesus would lead us into as a church. So I think that means Jesus would have been friends with people in the trans community. I know he would have. 
I think if Jesus were here, many from the trans community would flock to him. I think the gender confused would find sanctuary in him. I think his hospitality towards the trans community would freak us out. I'll say this. I think that his hospitality would freak us out so much, some of us would leave his church. No, not me, Anthony. I think you would. Jesus has a holistic, radical love he wants us to lead us into, but it's not just the stuff our culture thinks is beautiful. I think Jesus would also speak against the damaging ideologies of the day. I think he would. I think in love and patience, he would guide people into embracing their biological sex. I think he would. I don't think he would reject that. I think that he would stand up against some of the damaging things happening in our society around this topic. Like, I'll be honest, guys. The things happening with kids around this stuff is horrifying to me. And I get that our culture is just trying to love and affirm their kids, but these kids are going under therapies and they're going under surgeries that are irreversible that many of them, once they reach adulthood, want to change their mind about. A kid making huge decisions about their physical body without guidance, love, and protection. I think, I think Jesus would stand against stuff like that. But I think he'd do it in patience and in love. A lot of us just want to be like keyboard warriors or really mean people around that stuff. Jesus would speak the truth in love and challenge that in a loving, holistic, radical way. And so I think Jesus would. I think Jesus would lead us into holistic, radical love. That's just what I think you do. Jesus was controversial, not for the sake of being controversial, but because God is controversial to our sinful flesh. God is controversial to just the ways we think things should be. I want to close with some excerpts from the end of Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, that I mentioned earlier. And just a few excerpts from the end, because as I read these excerpts, I was convicted and I was inspired to, to love like Jesus more. So uh, here they are. He says this, Our cultural moment is one of outrage and uncertainty. And sometimes I too get caught up in the moment. There's plenty of fodder for outrage, but outrage doesn't change the world. Love changes the world. Getting furious at our cultural moment doesn't convince people of the truth. Our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Because the greatest apologetic for truth is love. Instead of sitting back and fuming over headlines, Christians should exude the outrageous love of Christ towards those struggling with gender or entangled in the web of deceptive ideologies. We need less outrage and more outrageous love. Jesus stood against sin, and yet sinners wanted to be in his presence. The marginalized, the hurting, the shamed, and the shunned, they all wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to go to his church. Do they want to go to yours? May we be a church that understands gender well. May we be a church that moves into this aspect of our culture with a holistic, radical love centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may our church be a place that the hurting, 
the shamed, the shunned, and the gender confused are loved in. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, help us in in this moment as probably all sorts of thoughts, questions, even painful memories are coming up for the, the wide swath that is in this room. God, we want to be faithful to you. That's ultimately what we want. We want to be faithful to you. We don't want to be faithful to ourselves. We don't want to be faithful to culture. We don't want to be faithful to our perspectives. We want to be faithful, faithful to you, God. Help us to be faithful to you. Lord, I just pray that we can be a church that loves those in the trans community well. I pray that we'd be able to lead them into your arms. And Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you just move in miraculous ways as we approach this topic and and interact with people that have gender dysphoria or consider themselves in the trans community. God, we love you and we need you. Help us understand you more this morning. Amen.